We're back in the Gospel of John this morning, and we're getting closer to the moment that Jesus is going to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as we've seen in recent weeks, the Lord has been preparing his disciples for this series of coming events. And he's been doing that in two ways. First of all, comforting them about the future, but also warning them about the persecution that is right around the corner. We always have to remember as we come to this point in the narrative that even though Jesus had taught them on this subject, had prepared them for this coming day, these 11 men still could not comprehend it. And we should understand why. These are Jewish men. And the idea that the Messiah of Israel, once he appeared in the world, would be taken away was unthinkable. That he would come and not only be taken away, but taken away by the religious establishment in Jerusalem. That's unthinkable. Just did not make any sense. It wouldn't compute with their minds. Think about it. Could this really happen to the Son of God? And if Jesus had come to establish his messianic kingdom, why would he allow it to happen? All these questions must have been running through their heads. And of course, here we are 2,000 years later with hindsight and with the written word of God in our laps, and it makes perfect sense to us, right? And it will make sense to the disciples later on, but in this moment, you have to know that this was very, very difficult for them to process through. So let's grab our Bibles. Let's open to John 16. John chapter 16, we're covering verses 16 to 24 this morning in our expository series. And before we dive in, let's be reminded of what Jesus has just promised to his friends. In the previous 11 verses, which we covered two Sundays ago, Jesus explained a little bit more to the disciples about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The one who is going to come, the one who is like Jesus in every way, is going to come and he is going to minister to them in Jesus' absence. Once Jesus goes away, he will come from the Father. And when the Spirit comes, we learn that he has two very distinct ministries, right? The first one is a ministry to the world, a convicting ministry, where the Spirit will show the world the truth about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment. And then a second ministry to the church, to all those that the Father will draw out of the world. The Spirit will minister to these. He will come. He will guide them into all the truth that they need to live a life of godliness and knowledge. And what was interesting about what we covered two weeks ago is just as the, God the Son spoke only what he heard from the Father, we learn here in John 16 that God the Spirit does not speak on his own initiative either. He takes what Jesus, God the Son, gives him, and he discloses those things to us. So we saw, we saw this brilliant uh, Trinitarian operation happening. The Father tells the Son what to share. The Spirit then reminds the church of what Jesus had to say. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and that continues in us today. Now, we're going to see something very interesting in the passage for this morning, and I want you to listen for it as we go along. It's something we've talked about before here at Oak Hill, and it, it's something Bible scholars call telescoping. Telescoping. Here's what that means. That in Scripture, sometimes there is a single event being talked about in that moment, in the present, and it has an immediate fulfillment, but in addition, there may also be a future fulfillment that has yet to happen. And that future fulfillment could come in the near future, the semi-near future, at some point in history it could come, or it could be eschatological, meaning it, it won't be fulfilled to the very end of days. So I want you to watch for that this morning. Now, if I was going to give this section of Scripture a title, this is what I would give it. 
Finding joy beyond the sorrow of this world. Finding joy beyond the sorrow of this world. And that idea is going to be critical for the disciples on this night of all nights because they're about to go through this very difficult time of trouble and sorrow. But here's the thing we're going to learn. They also have a great promise of joy that will come once they go through that sorrow. And in a macro sense, there's a parallel with you and I in our lives today. We are living right now in a time of trouble and distress and sorrow, a time when the evil one is roaming around seeking to devour, a time when wickedness seems to abound all around us. But we have a great promise too. We have a great promise. Not only do we serve a mighty God who will sustain us through those choppy seas, but we know that there's coming a glorious moment when Christ will return and he will make all things right and then we will enter into joy eternal. So we're in a time of trouble, but there's joy at the end of this. So let's listen to Jesus' words. See if you can discern the immediate promise and an application to our lives as we read. Verse 16. Remember, as we read what's happening, Jesus and the 11 have left the upper room. They're walking towards the Mount of Olives, aren't they? Together, towards the garden. Verse 16. A little while, Jesus says, and you will no longer see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us? A little while, and you'll not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So what's happening here is, is they're, they're trying to piece together the gist of what Jesus has been telling them on this night. Verse 18. So they were saying, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Okay, so just as you and I would be, they're obviously puzzled in this moment. But what they're most concerned about here is a timetable. Don't we all love timetables? How often do we go, I would love to know when Jesus is coming back. Give, give me, lay it out for me, Lord. I want a timetable. Well, these guys want to know, when is all this going to happen? Jesus, what do you mean by a little while? And what's funny to me is, is it seems a little comical how they go about this, right? Not one of them is willing to raise their hand and go, Lord, could you explain this more? But they turn to each other and they begin to whisper, what does he mean? what's going on, right? They're having this little internal discussion, right? Now, it's possible that they're just afraid at this point to reveal their ignorance because we know from the gospel narratives there have been times when Jesus mildly rebuked them for being slow to understand. So maybe they're just afraid of being rebuked. But then in verse 19, we find out that even their whispering doesn't fool the Lord, right? He's aware of their confusion and he's overheard their conversation. Verse 19, Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, are you deliberating together or are you asking one another about this? That I said a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? What Jesus knew in that moment is that his friends needed their hearts and their minds prepared for what they were gonna have to endure in the coming hours and the coming days. So look at verse 20. This is what he says in response. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, or weep and mourn. But the world will rejoice. You will grieve or be sorrowful, but, and that's an important word, but your grief will be turned into joy. So in a little while, those who love Jesus are going to be overwhelmed with sorrow. And at the same time, those who hate him they will be exceedingly glad. They will actually rejoice at the news 
of his death. Why? Because finally, this unvalidated rogue preacher who spurned all the standard religious rules of the day will be taken out of the way, finally. And the religious establishment will soon congratulate themselves, pat themselves on the back for getting rid of this pesky rabbi who wouldn't listen to them. This pesky rabbi who threatened their power. And they'll be able to return things back to the status quo in Israel, which of course was to their benefit. So for them and their father, the devil, it's going to seem like an hour of triumph. But here's the key, only for a little while. They will think that they've triumphed for a little while. And the disciples, well, in the next few hours, they are going to watch some horrific things take place. Their, their master, the one that they love, is going to be brutally dragged away and taken to a trial, a false trial in the middle of the night. And then as they flee for their lives, they're going to hear the news that this one that they love is going to be scourged and beaten by the Roman guard, that he's facing execution. In other words, they're going to realize soon, and this would have been tough, that everything Jesus predicted about what was going to happen, it was actually going to happen. I wonder if they had been sort of trying to figure out a way around Jesus's words. Well, he says he's going to go away, but maybe he doesn't really mean that because that can't be, right? But now they realize he is going to be taken away. So everything that they'd hoped in was about to be blown apart. Their entire future was soon to be in doubt and their faith, we can't even fathom how hard this would have been. Their faith in Jesus and his teaching would be put at such a severe test as they watch him taken away. And of course, Jesus knew all this. That's why he's been going through this whole discussion in the upper room. He knew that his friends were going to struggle to be plunged into this nightmare of fear and despair, but he also knew what was going to come about, the end of it, that in a little while, God would turn all of that sorrow and all of that grief into exceeding joy. So none of this is a surprise. I know we know this, but it's always good to point out None of this is a surprise to God the Son. It's not a bump in the road on the way to fulfilling God's plan. It is God's plan. Has been all along. So let's pause here and look through that telescope now. How do we today experience similar sorrow and grief? And what's at the end of that for us? Let's talk about it. We've seen this multiple times in John's gospel. You and I are currently living in the last days. We're living in the last days. This is the final age, right? The final age. Romans 11 tells us that now a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Until when? Until the full number of the Gentiles has come into the kingdom of God. And when that happens, when God has saved all whom he intends to save, then we will see Christ return in power and great glory. And in the meantime, we live as strangers and aliens in this world, don't we? We don't always think of it in those terms, but that's what we're called. Strangers and aliens in this world because it's not our home. It doesn't feel right to us. Our true citizenship is in heaven. It's not here on the earth. So we are this proverbial people just passing through in this very short vapor of time that we call life on the earth. And we're headed for our true home in heaven. But as we do that, we suffer real sorrow. And we suffer heartbreaking loss. First and foremost, because of the fallen nature of God's good creation. We live in a fallen world. We know this, right? Sin surrounds us, and it affects us too. We too battle against the flesh and all the painful consequences that we suffer in our own person because of our, 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 our falling short in that, right? We're all in that battle. When others sin against us, it, it hurts us deeply. We suffer physical repercussions from the fall in this world. 
and they cause deep sorrow and grief. Christ followers lose loved ones. Christians suffer tragic accidents. We endure job losses and business losses and so much more. And those things can create doubt in our hearts, can't they? When we go through a hard time, create doubt in our hearts about God's character. We begin to ask the question, is God really good or not? But it's all a part of living in a fallen world. The creation is groaning right now, right? We hear its voice. It's groaning in anticipation of this great day when it will be renewed. We also suffer grief and sorrow because of our expectations, because of things that we hope for and plan for, but then they don't come to fruition. And even sometimes when we're certain that it's within God's will, and yet it doesn't happen. We have hopes for our children, for example. We have hopes for our marriage. We have hopes for our career, hopes for financial stability. There's so many examples we could point towards. And sometimes without realizing it, we've misunderstood the character of God in this. We have mistakenly believed that it's always his will to give us com you know, complete fulfillment of all our earthly goals and dreams. So we bring those expectations to the table. And then when things don't turn out like we think they should, then they don't go the way we think they should, we become confused and sorrowful, even angry and bitter towards God. The fallen world we live in, our own expectations about life. And then we also suffer sorrow and frustration when we see evil triumph all around us. Wait, hold on, Lord. I'm a worshiper of yours. I am trying to live a faithful life, yet I'm struggling and suffering. But look at those people. Why are they doing so well? And we get frustrated. By the way, you notice that Jesus addresses this very thing here in verse 20. The world's going to rejoice at his death when he's taken away. We know from church history that the world has always celebrated at the suffering of Christians. It's always been that way. And we should expect in our day that we are going to face that same rejoicing from the wicked people of the world when we suffer, when our voices get silenced, when our gatherings get disrupted. If the day comes where the power of the state comes against us to take us out of the way, the world will rejoice. So at least on the outside, we're going to see evil triumph in our day. And we should know that. That's when the enemy rejoices. But remember, it's for a little while only. Remember that. Someday this world will perish and the devil and his followers will be judged and they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. So we know that our God is good and righteous and just and he will finish that task. So follow-up question, then what other mistakes do we make in response to sorrow and loss? We know it's here. We know it's around us. What mistakes do we make? Let me give you a few mistakes that we make. I've seen believers shipwreck, shipwreck their faith and fall away because they didn't know how to face biblical suffering when it came. They weren't equipped to deal with the trials of this life. They had the mistaken notion that because they believed in Jesus, because they went to church, because they did the Christian things, that he would somehow insulate them from any major hardship in life. So when tragedy hits folks like this, what are they naturally going to feel? Abandonment. God's abandoned me, they say. And so what do they do in response? Do they lean into him or do they drift away? They drift away. They turn their back on him. They give up. They make the mistake of 
judging the, the truth of things more by their life experiences than by the word of God, more by what they can see versus what is unseen. Peter, in his first epistle, tells us that this is actually one of the enemy's most powerful strategies to tear the weak in faith away from Jesus. First Peter 5, it says this, Be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, most of us have heard that verse, but have you heard the condition that Peter connects that to in the very next verse? He goes on, But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So the devil is active in the midst of our sufferings and trials to try to tear us away from Christ. That's what Peter tells us in this passage. It's also found in the parable of the sower, right? With the parable of the sower, you've got this sower who is throwing out the seed of the gospel and it's landing on various types of soil. From Matthew 13, it says, the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. That's great, right? Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, he immediately falls away. So we've been shown this in the word, how this is possible. And it's a wake-up call for every single one of us, especially as we enter into this uncertain future, even here in America, where persecution Maybe right around the corner. This is a wake-up call for us. We've got to guard our hearts. We've got to study the Word. We've got to be prepared for the trials that are guaranteed to come. They've been promised to us. Guaranteed to come so that in the day of testing, we'll stand firm. And we'll stand firm together. Now, there are other reactions to sorrow and loss that are also unbiblical. That's the, the main one. But one is this idea of, well, I just have to claim my healing or I claim my miracle, as if we can manipulate God, right? This is what we see happening among so many of our Pentecostal friends. They point to selective promises in the Word while ignoring a whole bunch of other ones, and they presume upon God to provide them with nothing but good times, nothing but health, nothing but wealth. But what happens when the, those things don't come to pass? Well, I'm not as healthy as I should be. How did I get sick? I'm claiming my healing. How am I not doing better? Why, why don't I have a Mercedes in my driveway? What are they told? You don't have enough faith. You got to try harder. Just try harder, right? And so they go, okay. And they try to work up their faith again. And it's a cycle. I try harder and I fall short. And I try harder and I fall short. And eventually, I just give up. I've just, I guess I just don't have enough faith. It's a terrible response. The other side of that coin is equally damaging. Christians who mistakenly believe that it's sinful or wrong to grieve or to shed tears because then you too somehow lack faith, some will say. So some Christians force themselves in the midst of trials to smile and to just walk around and say, hey, brother, praise the Lord all the time, right? Meanwhile, inside they're dying. Inside they're struggling, but they don't feel safe enough in Christ's church to share that with others. There's nothing unspiritual about feeling deep sorrow in times like these. Nothing unspiritual or sinful about grieving at a time of loss. Yes, we grieve differently than the world. Let's get that right because of our hope in Christ. But we still grieve because it hurts. 
There's real pain down here on the earth. And listen, you can know and experience the sustaining grace of the Lord after a time of sorrow and loss, but that doesn't mean you won't continue to think about that hurt and feel the depth of that pain for the rest of your life because we're not insulated from the reality of life on this earth. So this means if we're all going to face these types of things, we'd better learn how to work through it biblically. We have a whole biblical counseling ministry here at Oak Hill that deals with sin and sorrow. And you know what? Some of us need it. And it's okay to say, I need it. It's a good thing. We better learn how to work through it biblically. And that starts with examining. And I, I mean really examining the base of our hope. What is it we actually build our hope on? There's an old saying, we tend to hang heavy weights on the thinnest of wires. And that's true of our hope sometimes. We tend to hang our hope on things that can suddenly be taken away from us, on temporary things. Things like our children, our spouse, our, our, our health, our jobs, things that are temporary, right? And by the way, those are all good blessings from the Lord, but they're inadequate as a foundation for joy because they're temporary. They can be taken away. So there has to be a more firm foundation for our hope, lest we begin to doubt, lest we begin to get angry and bitter and potentially fall away. Now, let's look at the metaphor in our text for how Jesus describes this. Look at verse 20. Jesus promised, you will grieve for a little while, he says, but your grief will be turned into joy. Now, before we get to the metaphor in verse 21, this may sound like splitting hairs, but it's an important distinction. Jesus doesn't tell his disciples that their sorrow is going to be replaced by joy. He says it's going to be turned into joy, meaning the sorrow will still be there, but it'll be turned into joy. That's, that's the nuance here, because we all want joy, but not all of us want to go through the sorrow to get there. We're like, Lord, give me all that joy. Just don't make me go through that to get there. But that's not the way it works. First, we endure the sorrow, and then we experience the joy. And that's the basis for the metaphor in verse 21. And all the ladies stood up, right? Here we go. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain. Okay, I was waiting. I was waiting. It was my wife. I mean, come on. Why? Because her hour has come. The time has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish or the suffering because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Now, I know some of your new moms are like, oh, no, I, I remember. I remember that pain. And I understand that. But Jesus' general point remains true. And I've seen this not only with my own wife, but with so many other ladies. Once that beautiful little gift from the Lord is wrapped up and placed in mama's arms, somehow that pain and anguish melts away. It melts away. And we say it's all worth it. It was worth all that pain. The joy outweighs the pain to get to that moment. And that's what Jesus is describing here in verse 22. It's a beautiful metaphor. He says, therefore, you disciples, you too have grief now. You are in birth pains. You have grief right now. But I will see you again, Jesus says. And then your heart will rejoice. The agony of losing their master is going to feel like going through labor. It's going to hurt that much. But when the disciples see him resurrected from the dead, they're going to experience a joy that they can't even imagine in this moment. Jesus forever alive. Think about that. 
and soon the dawning of a new age. Soon they're going to understand, but first they've got to endure the grief. That's the big message of this metaphor of labor pains. They're going to have the joy, but first you've got to endure the grief and the sorrow. And then look at the promise in the next phrase in verse 22. Listen, underline this, highlight this. Let it sink deeply into your heart because Jesus promises, and no one will take your joy away from you. Nothing in this world will be able to take away that joy. Now, consider how this might apply to the pain and anguish that you might be going through right now here on the earth. When you pass from this life, I don't know if you've considered that moment, and you see Jesus face to face as we've been promised, and you hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Will not all the earthly grief be worth it? It will be. In that day, the birth pangs that you've suffered in this earthly life will melt away. You will have endured to reach the joy. You'll have an eternal joy that can never be taken away. That's our hope. And this is what Paul described for us in Romans 8. The sufferings of this present time. Look, I know they're hard, but they're not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Hang on that promise in hard times. He says later in 2 Corinthians, therefore we do not give up. We do not give up, he says. I know it's hard, but we don't lose heart. We don't give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, and it feels like that sometimes, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable, eternal weight of glory. He just piles the metaphors or, or the participles or whatever they are together, right? Adjectives, adverbs, all of them. Absolutely incomparable, eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen. We don't judge everything by our life experience. We don't say, well, this is happening to me, therefore this must be true. No, we focus not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what you see is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Listen, I have, I have this sneaky suspicion, and I can't back this up, that when we get to heaven and we reflect on our life on earth, we are going to chuckle at ourselves. We're going to get a kick out of it and think about all the things that we focused on in this very short vapor of time, rather than on heaven, rather than on Christ. And as we navigate this life as strangers and aliens, we're not without resources. This is the really good news. Let me give you four practical things that will help you endure in the midst of loss. Here's the first one. Divine purpose. We have to know that there's a divine purpose when we go through sorrow and affliction. It's so important for us to know that we are just not hapless victims that stumbled into some random circumstances and, oops, God is surprised. We have to know that God has a plan for it. As hard as it is, he has a purpose in it. The fact is, sorrow and affliction are effective teachers in our lives. Let me say it again. Sorrow and affliction are effective teachers in our lives. 
Those experiences refine us and grow us and prepare us for greater things. James says this, right? He says, the testing of your faith produces endurance or perseverance. And then he says that in turn produces maturity and completeness. So bring it on, right? Paul says the same thing. Affliction produces endurance, which leads to proven character and hope. Those are great truths. In other words, I hate to say this, we need suffering in our lives. We need suffering. If we're going to be conformed to the image of Christ, who suffered on our behalf, we're going to need suffering in our lives to refine us and grow us and mature us. And when we endure, when we find that joy at the end of the sorrow, this is, this is, this is something we often forget because what happens when we, when we struggle is we, we focus on self, right? And I, I understand why I do the same thing. But when we get to the other end of that grief and we find that joy that's promised to us, we can then turn around and minister to others. We're actually more equipped then to minister to other people. One of my favorite passages in the whole New Testament comes from 2 Corinthians 1, where Paul calls God the God of all comfort, right? The God who comforts us in our afflictions. But he goes on in that passage to say, not just for your benefit, it's great that God comforts you in your afflictions, but not just for your benefit. He goes on to say that he does this so that we can take the comfort that we've received from God and turn around and comfort others who are in the midst of their brand of suffering. And that adds to the purpose of, our, of sorrow in our life so that we can come to the aid of others. So here's the thing, and this is a tough thing to get your arms wrapped around in this world that we live in. If our lives are untouched by suffering, we're actually not better for it. We're actually not better for it. It's actually a deficiency in our lives if we haven't been touched by suffering. So let that sort of tweak the way you see life. Again, I don't want to walk into it intentionally. I'm not asking God to give it to me, but when it comes, I've got to be prepared because I know there's something in it for me. Second thing, and man, I didn't even know we were singing Glory of the Cross this morning, but we just sang about this. We should focus on the glory of the cross, which is explained to us over and over again in Scripture. What did we sing? I gladly count my life as loss right? In light of the glory of the cross. It's an interesting thing to notice that, that we see in the gospel narratives this suffering that the disciples go through. But in later writings, once they come through it and, and, and find that joy, they don't talk about the cross in mournful tones anymore. Have you noticed this in scripture? They talk about it as glorious. They talk about it. I mean, Paul says he glories in the cross. He boasts in the cross. So the Lord turns our present sorrow into joy as we get a deeper understanding of the cross, as we get a deeper understanding of how he suffered on our behalf and then gives us the opportunity to share in his sufferings in our lives as well. And I'll, I'll tell just a quick personal story. It's actually not even in my notes and I wasn't going to share this, but I think I should, which my wife always goes, <gasps> what's he going to say now? Or the elders are like, <gasps> what's he going to say? This is, okay, this is a really small thing. I know that many of you have, have suffered sorrow and loss at deep levels, but the Lord has been challenging me in the last few weeks with the stupidest little thing that I have complained about and then given back to him. And it's, I've got this, I guess it's tendonitis in my arm right now, in my forearm and elbow, and it hurts. I mean, especially, you know what it hurts the most? 
when I'm sitting at my laptop writing, and I'm doing all this with my right hand, and I'm, I'm on the, the mouse pad, and I'm clicking, the pain. It, it has taken me so long to write this morning's sermon because of the pain in my arm. And I started to get all victim-y this week. <laughs> Ask Tanya. I'm like, Lord, why am I suffering like this? I'm writing a sermon. <laughs> and then I'm, he does this all the, as I prepare for a sermon, he teaches me so much. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm getting into this passage, and I'm like, man, I'm such a wimp. <laughs> right? But, but it's a reminder. So every time my elbow hurt and I had to take a break and I'm doing this, oh, just let my arm rest. I'm like, Lord, you suffered so much for me. You suffered so much for me. And yeah, I'm, I guess this is sharing in your sufferings. If this is the thorn in the flesh that you want to give me so that I hurt every time I write a sermon so I can remember to lean into you, then thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. The glory of the cross. All right, that was weird. <laughs> Third thing is to get an eternal perspective. Scripture gives us, in all things, this big picture of God's plan, this eschatological picture of where everything is headed, the telos, or the culmination of all things. It's right there, plainly in, in the Word. You just got to study it, the eternal perspective. When we see the big picture of what God is doing in this world, it makes a huge difference in how we function day to day, year to year. It enables us to endure suffering for the sake of eternity, for the sake of the kingdom, right? And I want to give you sort of an obscure example of this that comes from the Old Testament. Psalm 73 is a fascinating psalm. Listen to how the psalmist processes through his sorrow and frustration of life on the earth and how he almost gives into it until he sees the big picture. I'll put it on the screen. Here's how he starts. He goes, as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die and their bodies are well fed. They're not afflicted like most people. Look at them, the wicked. They're always at ease and they increase their wealth. So he's confused, right? He's angry. And right now he's at risk of turning away from God. But then he goes on. He says, When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny, how suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors. Then he goes on and prays, You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. So he was, his eyes were down here, right, on the earth, seeing all the wickedness and all the sorrow. And then he went into God's house, and he met with Yahweh, and it turned him around. And he saw the eternal perspective, and that eternal perspective allowed him now to go from anger and sorrow to great joy. What a great lesson for us, right? Last reason, number four, and it's a simple one. We have Jesus. We still have, Jesus was taken away. We still have Jesus. Amen? And we have his ministry to us. In fact, we have the ministry of all three persons of the Godhead. Look at our last two verses, verses 23 and 24. 
In that day, he says, now what day? There's debate about this, what he's referring to here. My opinion is that he's now going back to his, his earlier reference to returning to the Father. So what he means is this, in that day when I'm physically gone, but the Spirit is with you, you will not question or ask me about anything. And that's obvious, right? They're not going to ask him because he's not physically with them. But now they are going to ask in a different way. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you receive so that your joy may be made what? Full or complete. So once Jesus returns to his seat of power, we're to petition the Father in his name. This is why we pray in Jesus' name, right? We come to the Father through him. He's the only way to the Father. So we come through him. Now the disciples know that even after Jesus is taken away, they can now lay their prayer request before the Father and know that Jesus is mediating for them, that he is their advocate before the throne of grace. So yeah, physically he's taken away, but he continues to minister to them and to us as well. So as you look at all this, as, as much grief and sorrow as the disciples are going to experience, it's not getting worse for them as they fear. It's actually getting better. It's actually getting better. They could have more resources to deal with the pains of life. So take a look at that list on the screen. It's imperative that we as Christ followers know what resources are available to us when that guaranteed time of suffering and sorrow comes. Know that there's a divine purpose to it. Focus on the glory of the cross and Christ's sufferings for you. Put on the eternal perspective that we see in Scripture. See that big picture. And then lean into Christ's ministry to you. Approach the throne of grace and ask in his name. And by the way, I'll just add to that just as a, a do it with your brothers and sisters in the local church. That's what we're here for, right? To support one another in hard times as part of our church covenant that will be there for each other in times of despair. We all focus on these resources and then we reach out to our brothers and sisters and say, hey, I need help. I'm struggling. So when you step back and look at all this, uh, let me ask a, a, a follow-up question just as we close our time this morning. Why do we still see so many weighted-down, joyless Christians in spite of all that? In spite of what the Bible tells us, what the Bible promises us, why do we still struggle with this? Can I give you a few answers? And this is not a knock on anybody in this room because I've been through this just as you have. The answer is spiritual immaturity. Spiritual immaturity. If you're joyless right now, weighted down by sorrow and grief, there's some measure of spiritual immaturity going on. It can be rectified, but first let's acknowledge what it is. It's the besetting sin of, of fear and worry. It might be a lack of just a, a pure lack of knowledge and understanding of what the Word says about grief and about sorrow. It's a failure to employ a biblical view of the life that you're living here on the earth. You just haven't lifted your eyes. It might be a focus on self rather than on others. You're just, you've become sort of tunnel visioned on yourself. Maybe you're looking for joy in things that just are never going to satisfy. And you keep trying. I mean, keep putting my hope in these things and, and I can't figure out why it's not satisfying. Look, there's a whole menu of possibilities here. But the Lord would have us overcome these things so that we can find that joy at the end of grief. So what should you do today if you're feeling joyless, if you're Right now, you're feeling weighted down by the sorrow and grief of the world. 
It starts with renewing your mind, changing your thinking, adjusting the way you see things to the way God sees it, the way it's shown in the Word. Review those four things that we talked about and then set out to shift your priorities. What are you focused on right now? What are your priorities? What, take stock of what you deem to be the most important things in your life. What takes up your time? What takes up your focus? What takes up your devotion? And if, if those things are focused on the things of this world that are fleeting and temporary, shift those priorities and seek first the kingdom of God. Spend more time in God's word. I mean, I'd love to say that there's an easier way to do it. You need time in God's word. You need to let the word soak into your soul. Spend more time in concentrated prayer. Do not forsake the gathering of believers. We need each other, especially in times of hardship. Seek out opportunities to get outside of yourself and to serve other people. That's often the most valuable thing we can do. I'm going through a hard time so I could sit here and navel gaze at how difficult things are. But no, I'm going to get up and I'm going to say, who else needs me? Who needs my ministry? And that can get us outside of ourselves. All these things are important, right? Maybe you need to enter into a discipleship relationship right now. You need to reach out and say, I need help on this. Whatever it is, take action. Don't expect transformation to just happen by accident. Be intentional about it, right? That's important. And remember, the, the Spirit promises that He will produce in His his children, the spiritual fruit of joy, if we'll renew our thinking, if we'll lift our eyes, and if we'll abide in Christ. And aren't you glad of that this morning? Father, we are um, grateful that you have, you have not abandoned us. You have not left us alone to try to navigate through the, the difficulties of this life, but you have instructed us in your word. You have told us what we should expect. You have told us that these hard times will come. You've told us there will be grief, Lord, but you've also promised great joy in the end. And so we, we hang on that promise, Lord. We lift our eyes from the things that we see, the things that we feel, and just submit them all to you and to your perfect word and ask God that your spirit would seal these truths in our hearts, that your spirit would do a work in us to renew our thinking, to transform our hearts, Lord, to see this whole vapor of time that you've given us in a different light. And we'll be focused on your kingdom. We'll be focused on the things of eternity more than the things of this earth. Lord, thank you for the way you uh, instructed these disciples and the way you continue to instruct disciples like us today. We give you all praise, Lord, both from our lips and from our hearts as we continue to sing this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.